welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. So glad to be with you. We are in a series called Kingdom Culture. And so if you haven't been with us, I want to give you a quick preview. You can't skip the intro on this part. So let me just give you a quick, quick little thing. Most of us don't even know what that means because we're fasting from media, right? <laughs> right? Some of you are. Okay, so Kingdom Culture. Uh, a few, I mean, I, I grew up in the church and um, came to believe in a certain kind of faith and then when I went to college, after I, I left the church and came back, I had this theological awakening around the things of the kingdom, where I realized I had missed the message of Jesus my entire life in the church. And I discovered his message, which was the kingdom of God has come near. And so we are building a series that will take us into this, the next year, essentially, on what is the kingdom of God and how do we build and, and sustain and empower and steward kingdom culture. And so we're starting with the theology. We're starting with the message of Jesus. So four weeks ago, we started with this passage from Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. And it says this in Mark chapter 14, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus um, went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And this is the primary message of Jesus. So this is the Gospel of Mark's summary of all of Jesus' teaching in one sentence or one, one verse. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So four weeks ago, we looked at the good news, which also is translated to the, the word gospel, the good news according to Jesus. What did Jesus mean by good news. And what we confronted was this theology, is this theology that is alive and well, and it's partial truth, but that Jesus's message about good news was that believe the right things about God, repent, and you'll hold this um, ticket that you'll go to heaven once you die. And it's called the gospel of salvation. It's essentially that we got to preach the gospel and get people saved so that they go to heaven. Um, that's part of Jesus's message. Um, the second week, we talked about what Jesus means when he says the time has come. In, um, for, in the first century context, when Jesus says the time has come, he would be referring to this Old Testament phrase called the age to come or the day of the Lord, um, which referred to this decisive moment in human history that when God would act again and bring about a new exodus that would m- usher in this new way of life that would be marked by healing, wholeness, shalom, peace, justice, uh, righteousness, the, uh, the, the, the law of God being written on the hearts of man, the spirit of God dwelling in all people, and God's kingdom being established over all other kingdoms. So when Jesus came onto the scene and says to a bunch of people in Galilee and all over Jerusalem, the time has come, it would have been electrifying. Everyone knew they were waiting and anticipating for this moment. And what we talked about is Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. Are you with me? That was episode two. Episode three last week is the kingdom of God is like salsa. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Finally, we're on board the hungry group. Okay, so we looked at this message that Jesus is going to teach over and over again. And we're going to explore it in many different dimensions over the next 16 weeks. But essentially is that the kingdom of God, God's sovereign rule and reign, is a reality to be experienced. 
And so much of our life with Jesus has been this idea of gospel of salvation, which essentially, if you remember last week, and I'm not going to make salsa today, but essentially, we've been trained as Christians to tell people about this great recipe that we have. And if they would just get the recipe right and know the right recipe, that one day they'll taste the recipe once they die. But our job actually is simply to bring that salsa to life and say, do you want some? And that's the idea of the kingdom, that that reality of God's way, the way it was intended to be in the first place is available to everyone here. Now it's like you can reach out and grab it and experience it for yourself. That was episode three. Episode four is repent and believe. And so we're going to look at what does it mean in the first century context for Jesus to say at the end of this beautifully dense statement, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? I want to start with this question. So we're going to answer this phrase. We're going to talk about this phrase. I'm going to explain it because what it meant in the first century is different than what we think it means today. And so I want to explore the dimensions of repentance and the dimensions of belief And then we're going to talk about first century, and then we're going to go out and all enjoy healthy brunch. So um, so here we go. So what does it mean to believe? This is the question I want to start with. So Jesus says, repent and believe. What does it mean to believe in context today, or what what did it mean back then? And what does it mean to believe in God? And this this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, because I think we think as Christians to believe, um, often the, the mindset that we have has been shaped by Greek philosophy and thought, which is primarily an intellectual concept. And I've talked to so many non-Christians, and for those of you that haven't experienced Alpha, Alpha is an amazing ministry that allows people with lots of questions who think um, you can be in any stage of life, at any journey of faith, and bring whatever you have, all your questions, your anger, your frustrations toward the, towards the church, and explore your, the faith, the Christian faith, with an un, kind of a non-judgmental space. And Alpha is amazing for that, but lots of conversations I have when it comes to people who are not church or not, don't understand why I'm a pastor has to do with my belief system. They, they, they have all these questions about reality that haven't been answered, and they wonder how I can intellectually believe something that seems so archaic to a lot of non-Christians. And I think that's partly to do with this Greek philosophy, that for us, <clears throat> or I'm going to explain to you what you'll have now, is that to the Christian understanding or the biblical understanding of belief is so much more different than just this intellectual statement that we have to know the right things about God. So belief, the word to believe, actually, let's look at this. So John 3, 16, this is one of the, those, the most famous passages in all of scripture. My five-year-old can recite this. Can we, can we do this together? Let's see if we have this memorized. The words are gonna go on the screen so you can pretend or you can close your eyes. For God so loved the world Um, you guys did amazing compared to the first service, all right? Some of them were in like King James. So I was like, where do you memorize? No, it's fine. If you have King James, it's the Bible. It's cool. So go, will you put that, that passage up real quick? So whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. So that's, that's a catchy statement, right? So in some ways, what, we, what I've seen happen, what's happened is we tried to get the, this idea of Christianity down to like the least common denominator. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like 
Romans, you know, if you believe that Jesus is Lord or confess, what is it? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? If you confess that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that he's raised from the dead, I'm just, I'm just trying, I'm acting like I don't know. I'm just seeing where you guys are at. <laughs> what does it say at the end? You shall be saved. So we've like, okay, that's, that's like if you believe and confess and you're saved. And Jesus himself says in John three sixteen, if whoever believes, what does it mean to believe? James chapter two, verse 19 Check this out. He says this. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even demons believe that and shudder. So if you believe you're saved, if you believe you have eternal life, and if you believe you're in the company of demons. So what good (laughs) is this word? Well, and that's what I want to get at. What does it really mean to believe in God? To believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? according to scripture. So the word believe is this Greek word, pistio, and it's used, uh, and it's described in this verse, it's used uh, throughout the Bible in all different places, and it's, it's, its definition is to have faith in or to trust. So this is gonna help us define this biblically, okay? So believe in the Greek is to have faith in Jesus or God, or to trust in Jesus or in God. Now, to, to form a Greek word, there are roots or multiple words to make a word. Now, that, I know it sounds a little complex, but we do this all the time. But there is a root word that makes the word belief in Greek even more powerful. And this is what it means. The root word for where we get the Greek word believe is this word translated firm persuasion or conviction in. So to understand the Greek word believe, the root of, its, of, its, uh, uh, of, it, of the word has something to do with being someone who, is, who has a firm persuasion or a deep conviction in Jesus. All right, so as we start to define, what does it mean to believe in God? I'm trying to help you define it. Belief in the scriptures is also connected in the Greek to the words hope, faith, and trust. These all kind of share a common core or root word. So belief does not mean to believe in something. Does not mean these are people who, people who believe in something does not mean that you have it all figured out or you don't have any doubts or you don't have any struggles or you don't have any issues or you have all of the answers to your questions. That's not what the definition of believe or belief means in the Greek. And I think for many Westerners, that's what we need to believe in Jesus. We need our questions answered. But that, that's not actually what Jesus refers to as belief, and that's not what the New Testament describes as belief. To believe in Jesus carries with it the idea that whoever is won over or persuaded that Jesus is where it's at. It is a passionate, active word. Being persuaded, convinced, and won over that this is where I want to place my life and trust in. This reality, and this reality will then shape the direction of my life. That's a better definition of belief. 
It's not, I got the answers to my questions. It's, I believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, and I'm going to stand, I'm going to walk, I'm going to live in that belief system and change the direction of my life in view of that reality. Does that make sense? It's a little different than, let's get this down to the common denominator, right? Are you with me? So to believe in Jesus will change the course or the direction of your life, that that's what it means to believe. That's what it means to have faith. All right, maybe this will help you out. Here's a quote from Dallas Willard, and I'm gonna quote him all the time because he's smart, but Dallas Willard says this. He says, the word faith, okay, just If you don't get anything out of my sermon, just listen to this. I gave you this quote, okay? The word faith is a real problem in our time. It has become respectable. How many churches do you know that have the word faith in their name? How many with the word trust? You see, trust is sloppy. It's out there on the street in the field of battle. Trust is where Satan and God are struggling for the soul of man. Oh, but faith, faith is quite nice, isn't it? Very prim and decent and proper even. And he goes on, he says, there's a family of words in the New Testament that are variously translated as belief, faith, and hope. And what they all have in common is the notion of reliance, confidence, and trust. It is trust that puts you in contact with God so you can draw upon his unlimited and inexhaustible resources. Can I get an amen? Amen. Unfortunately, many folks have their faith lined up in such a way that they do not need to rely on God. They do not need to trust God. They have a proper faith in terms of what they need to believe to go to heaven when they die but they hope that God is never going to put them in a position of needing to actually trust him before they go there. Obviously, Dallas Willard. So to believe, as we define this word, I don't even need to, yeah, okay. So to believe is, I thought that was funny. To believe is about living in a reality of what's true. It's active. It's about bringing your life into a place where it reflects what you've been convinced, persuaded, or won over by. That's the belief we need. And that's when we read about stories of people of faith, that's the, that's the type of belief we witness in their story. I heard this story recently, um, a couple months ago, of the, the martyrdom of Polycarp. How many of you have heard of Polycarp, the early church father who lived from, 60, I think it was uh, 55, let me get it right, 69 to 155 AD. And he was killed by the Romans at the age of 86 years old. And the story goes like this. He was a leader of a movement. He was a disciple of the apostle John. And um, he led church movements throughout the Roman Empire. And the Romans were starting to kill all these Christians. And so they come to this guy, guy's house. And the Romans show up to this frail 86-year-old man's house and he insists on giving them food. So he shows them hospitality and feeds them dinner before he's arrested by their soldiers. Isn't that amazing, by the way? Like, that's just one part. And then they, and he asked if I could, as you eat, can I pray for an hour? And they give him that, and he prays for two hours. And then they take him before the arena where he's going to be killed. And the proconsul, of, the Roman proconsul begins 
to request that he denies his faith and rejects Jesus. And there's this story of what happens, and this is kind of history from the perspective of uh, those that were there and kind of became Christian tradition. It says that um, the proconsul said to him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp, Polycarp responded, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul called forth for the animals, but he showed no fear for the beasts that would ravage his body. And so then they threatened him with fire, and his response to being threatened to be burned alive is this. He said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Oh, come on, right? So good. So they set him up to be burned alive. All he has to do is deny Jesus. They are about to, they're about to nail him to a post. And he says, I'm not going to move. And essentially, they don't nail him. He's like, I'll, take, I'll stand there. And they light the, the flame on fire. And, the, and it burns around him to where his body doesn't burn up. He doesn't die. And in order to kill him, they, the executioner has to stab him. They pierce him with a spear. And the story goes that his blood poured out and extinguished the fire. Oh! Do you think he was won over? Do you think he was persuaded? When I think of martyrs, those that die for the faith, clearly at their moment of death, they are not backing down. They have been won over. This is not about least common denominator. This is about you don't need to nail me to the stake. I'm going to stand here and burn for Jesus. But what you've got to realize is that those who die for the faith lived for it first. That the stories of excellent death are, is the backstory of excellent life. And that's, that's what belief is about. How are we doing? So, are you won over? Are you persuaded? Are you convinced? Is your life, are you willing to stand, to, to run, to live in the reality of what you've come to believe as true? It's believe. And then he says, before that, he says, repent. What does it mean to repent? What is repentance? When I think of the word repentance, especially growing up, I immediately think of sin. Who else thinks of that? Yeah, okay. So we're gonna talk about that in a second. But the word repent or repentance is this Greek word which means to change one's mind. Also translated to feel remorse or to be converted, to have a religious conversion. So we're familiar with this. Repentance is a call for an ongoing and complete change of mind and action. Now the Greek, again, the Greek word to change one's mind is the definition which has this intellectual kind of tone to it. But when we draw from it the Jewish and the Old Testament concept, it actually demands a lifestyle. It's moral, it's ethical, it's mental, it's a person's life. And repentance is of course connected to sin, to change one's mind and to repent from sin. You, you are, 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 are going to respond. You hear some information about Jesus or about something. And in the Greeks, so the Greeks, before it was used for Jesus, it would be like a philosopher would come and tell you this is how life really is. And you would repent by changing your, your mind about how you thought the world worked. 
So Jesus is saying, hey, guys, the kingdom of God is reality. God's in charge. Change your mind about how you thought it was going, this thing called life, and align yourself to this new reality, okay? So, but the idea has something to do from, from turning or about turning from sin and turning towards God. And so sin is antithetical to God. And that's what we have to hear. I want to, I, I was, I'm always like cautious to talk about this because I feel like it's, we've done a really bad job in Christianity, in the church, to talk about the cross and to talk about the message of Jesus, the real message of Jesus. And, and for most of us, and maybe this is wrong, but most of us, my experience has been, most people think Christianity is about sin management. And what I mean by that is you think, every, so what happens is you make a mistake in your life. Like, how many of you made a mistake this week? That's what I thought, everyone. Okay. What's that quote? Can you go to Romans real quick? What's that quote? Romans yeah, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yes? Okay, so we have to understand that we make mistakes. Sin, the word sin means to miss the mark, okay? You were designed for human perfection. You were designed to thrive and flourish. You were designed to have no sin, to not lie, to not cheat, to not gossip, to not sleep around with your, your person other than your spouse, to not look at those websites, to not cultivate lust in your mind all day long and then try to deal with it later at night. You were designed to not have any of that. Can I get an amen about that? You were designed to have no anxiety, to have no financial worry or fear. You were designed to live in perfect harmony with all people, with yourself and God. Is that good news? Yes. But we've all fallen short of glory. We are designed for the glory of God. And so anything other than perfect is sin. That's what sin's about. But so many of us go to church and what we're taught is sin management. That the, the accountability groups we need to be is, have is to keep us from sinning. But we need accountability groups to keep us doing the things that Jesus would do if he were here and he were you. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean just not looking at that magazine. I mean casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. Are you with me? So that's why I've, I've cautioned and I've had this. But I want to talk about sin today, because it's so important to understand what Jesus is referring to. Repentance is how we begin to walk out our faith in God. We have to change the mind, our minds and change directions. And this is what we see all throughout the Bible. So Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the very first sermon on Sunday morning, 9 o'clock in the morning. They, they, see, there was no multiple services. There was one service. It was the 9 o'clock service. So 9 o'clock in the morning, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the church. People are speaking in tongues. The crowds are gathered because it's the, the festival of weeks. What's going on? Are you guys drunk? Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, and at the end of the gospel, look at this. This is 50 days after Jesus was, was crucified. 50 days after he was crucified, Peter says to the crowd, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and King, Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the apostles, what should we do? And look what Peter says. Remember, this is cowardly Peter warming himself up by the fire, denying Jesus three times to a slave girl and a bunch of friends of the Pharisees. Now he stands up and he says, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Can I get an amen? 3,000 people are baptized. By the way, side note, in the New Testament, there's no real evidence for someone to say a prayer and follow Jesus and not get baptized. Baptism was the symbol that all Christians participated in as the, 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 the physical representation of the internal reality of belief and confession in Jesus. We're gonna do baptisms on Easter. I just think there's gonna be tons of us getting baptized because we need to make it the symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. Anyway, that's just a side note. So there he is. He preaches this, this passage, this gospel message about Jesus. At the end, he says, repent and be baptized. So we respond to what's being taught us to us and we, we turn away from something to step in or step towards something else. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God's design was perfect, loving relationship and we always miss it. So repentance is the only possible response to the gospel message. Repentance and belief. What does that mean when you put those words together? We'll talk about that in just a second. But we miss it. We're sinning all the time. And in Romans, Paul will say, your old self has been crucified, past tense, with Christ. Therefore, kill it. This is literally what it translates. He'll say, your old self is dead, therefore, kill it. If you're dead, the old way is dead, so keep on killing the old way and let the new life be born. And that's good news. So that process is, is why we're here. Because nobody here is perfect. How many of you missed it last, this last week? How many of you blew it yesterday? Raise your hand. Okay, can I share my story? So yesterday was Sabbath for our family, which, you know, it says all over the place in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is a delight. That is, that is not true. <laughs> I, now that's God speaking that to Israel, so I can't deny. So it is true. I have yet to experience the Sabbath as a delight. So for anyone here, like, love to get stuff done, achiever, find value, identity, meaning, and purpose in work. Okay, there's a good amount. Okay, so when you are doing a fast, right? So trying to be super spiritual for 40 days with the church, doing this new Nazarite fast, which eliminates all of the things that you occupy your time with, like television, social media, uh, news, m movies, Netflix, for your kids and your family, it's a nightmare. This is week one, and I'm already struggling <laughs> on Sabbath. So we wake up. It's, it's Sabbath. It's, so, we're, you know, we're prepped for the day. I, I let Alex sleep in. I play with the kids. We're having fun. And then we go to Barnes & Noble to read at Barnes & Noble because they have this beautiful thing designed where kids can terrorize the books and stuffed animals in a secure location except for the escalator, which Amos, Amos was running at sprinter's pace to get to, trying to kill himself at the escalator. So I had to prevent death. But anyways, it was a fun time. Ate some, ate some food. We're, on this, we're doing this paleo thing because we're like starving the flesh and literally starving the comforts of my life. So I can't eat cheese and bread right now, which is like literally the worst thing any human can do to themselves <laughs> other than dying, being burnt alive. But I'm just kidding. 
That was a complete joke. Yeah, amen. We, pizza is like the go-to or burritos or whatever it is. So there I am. It's great. Kids nap. We're hanging out. Alex and I are having fun. She's like, hey, babe, we have a birthday party this afternoon. Um, why don't you stay home and get some downtime? You never get alone time at the house. How about I just take the kids by myself, which she never, she never offers that. And <clears throat> I'm like, great. So I go, why don't I wash your car and I'll prep dinner? Um, well, she asked me to prep dinner. I said, no, I'm not going to do that, but I'll wash your car. And, and she's like, no, actually, I think you should just rest. Oh, babe, thank you so much. So I get two hours to myself. And you know what happens during that time? I'm agitated. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is this, you know, like, am I the crazy person? I'm irritated. So she comes home. How's your time? It's all right. What do you mean it was all right? I'm like, I don't know. It was all right. And then it begins to escalate. So we're talking about missing the mark. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. This was not a glorified moment. I lose my temper. I raise my voice. I mean, it wasn't just that. There were other things exchanged, okay? My wife was perfect in all of how she communicated. For those of you listening at home, she doesn't ever do anything wrong. So there I was, raising my voice in the heated exchange as the kids are playing. And at one point, I'm in the kitchen, frustrated, talking loud. I think Alex saw one of our neighbors come in and like leave. So that happens, and I'm hiding in the corner in our kitchen. I'm just like, and then I like hide and run to the back. And then it's dinner time. So we set the dinner, and we pray, and thank God Ezra prays. Ezra wants to pray every time, so he prays, so I don't have to. And as he's praying... I'm like now realizing what I'm telling you right now. This is super vulnerable. Like we're in the, the, the nest of trust here, okay? So the tree of trust. So there we are. I'm still angry. And I feel the Holy Spirit say, you blew it. And he convicts me of sin. That was sin, Darren. What was it? It was inappropriate anger. Uh, Dallas Willard talks about losing your self-control is giving into your emotions and your body not allowing the mind of Christ, which is governed by the Spirit, to have influence over the flesh, okay? This is technical, and I've been studying a lot. I've been meditating. I've memorized scripture about being slow to anger, okay? I've gone to therapy about it. I've had Bill Doctrum, pastor, soul care, spiritual guru, mentor me for 16 years, and I'm still, I've done the general gram. I've, I've looked at my dad, how he had explosive anger, but my mom has never shown anger in her life, so I'm sitting here as this paradox of frustration, wanting to not be inappropriately anger, angry. This is, the, this is literally a prayer in my life. And there I was losing it. And the Holy Spirit at dinner goes, Darren, you blew it. You need to repent. So I go, you're right. In my head, this is happening real time as my son's praying for literally praying my, free, my little five-year-old boy. Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross for us. This is my five-year-old boy at dinner. And I'm thinking, I can't believe Alex is talking back like this to me. So I go, God, forgive me. Thank you for forgiving me. Because it's, it's all, you're already forgiven. So it's not like I have to prove anything to him, right? So it's just, it's just a mind shift. Oh man, I blew it. You're right, I blew it. Forgive me. But this is what repentance looks like. I turn to Alex and I say, Alex, I apologize. I'm sorry. I blew it. I lost my anger. I treated you disrespectfully. I dishonored you and I dishonored everything. And I modeled that to our kids. Will you forgive me? 
And then she, she didn't say anything because she takes some time to process. <laughs> right? She's a, a slow, like, some of you are like, forgiveness. Yeah, you're forgiven. Which, watch, what happened next is I go, hey, Amos, who's 20 months old, doesn't have a clue. Daddy did this. He doesn't even know. Ezra, I looked Ezra in the eyes. I said, Ezra, daddy blew it. Daddy raised his voice. He yelled at mommy and used his anger inappropriately and created an environment that is not okay for you to hear. And I apologize to you. I, will you forgive me for not modeling the Christ, or the spiritual fruit or Jesus's character? And he, without missing a beat, yeah, absolutely, I forgive you. Jesus already forgives you. <laughs> and I look at him and I look at Alex and I'm like... Repentance. You see, repentance is an ongoing process. And for the Greeks, it was, and for the Jews, it was a good thing. It wasn't seen as this negative thing. It was this good thing that you were going one direction and now you're changing directions. You had these, this thought, but now you learned some, something new and you changed course. Your mind is now changing. And the Hebrew word to repent is the, the Hebrew word teshuva. Would you say teshuva? Teshuva. It's a good word, and it means to return. Think about this idea. It means to return back to the way it was. You see, the story for, for us is that the story, our story begins in Genesis 1 and 2, where we were destined and designed to live in perfect, loving relationship with God, ourselves, and others. It was perfect. There was no sin. So when we repent, we're changing course. We're returning back to the way we were intended to be in the first place, marked by healing and shalom and joy and peace and appropriate anger. And that's good news. In the beginning of time, Genesis 1, God says this to humanity. I want you to see the importance because repent and believe is connected to Genesis 1. I want to show you how. Genesis 1, we're created in perfect loving relationship with all creation, harmony. We've read this passage before. Genesis 1, verse 26, it says this. It says, then God said, let us make man mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and over all the animals. So God created mankind in his image. He created... Uh, he created them, male and female, he created them. Go to the next passage. So God blessed humanity. So this is how the story begins. The story doesn't begin in Genesis 3. It begins in Genesis 1. I know that's like revolutionary. Yes, teaching my son to count. Three comes after two and after one. But that's how the story, how a story begins shapes the story you're telling. Okay? If we think this is all about being saved, the gospel of salvation, we're going to start the story in Genesis 3, which was me at 19 years old trying to convince people that they're going to go to hell. Let me tell you Genesis 1 and 2. You were designed for perfection. Are you at war with yourself? Do you have anxiety? Do you get inappropriately angry towards your spouse? There's hope and transformation, and there's a possibility of being saved. Let me tell you about that story. You see the difference? Maybe not yet. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. So God says, be fruitful, which, which is having to do about, uh, that has to do with uh, cultivating work in the Garden of Eden and uh, increase the number. So populate the earth, uh, fill, which everyone says amen. Fill the earth and subdue it. The word, so circle subdue. And there it is again. Rule over the fish and the, the sea and the birds in the sky and everything that moves along, along the ground. So there's this, this idea that we're made in the image of God and then God commissions humanity 
And he gives them these words, rule and subdue, radah and kabash, to have govern or authority, to reign, to rule, to steward, to, to govern, to manage. And then there's kabash, which I love that word. I just put it up there because it's fun to say kabash, which means to subdue, to bring under your influence. And the, the, the idea is that humans, let me, let me quote this right. In the beginning of time, God empowers and partners with humanity in the careful cultivation and stewardship of creation. Our God-given human task was to work in relationship with God to extend the culture of Eden to the rest of the planet. So scholars believe that our task before the fall of man was to take the Garden of Eden and grow it around the rest of the planet. With partnership with God, humans were given the task to cultivate space around the earth, to create environments for the rest of creation to flourish. This was our responsibility as humans. Partner with God to, to create environments for the rest of creation to flourish. This is what it means to be human. But we know that Genesis 3 comes into the picture and this is where it fails. Humans were given the option to do it with God on God's behalf in partnership and loving relationship with him or to do it through our own. And we chose to go our own way. And that brought all sorts of disorder and chaos and it, it, our rebellion brought the fall of all of the cosmos. Sin enters into the story. And one scholar says sin, by definition, is the vandalization of shalom. Think about it. So it's how are you participating in the destruction of the cosmos? The cosmos. Every time you live in that insecurity, every time you live in that fear, every time you use your anger inappropriately, every time you lust, every time you sleep with the person that's not your wife or your husband, every time you are, are gossiping about people at work, every time you lie, you cheat, you live in pride, either uh, an elevated view of self or a, a, a de-escalated view of self, an inaccurate view of self is still pride. Every time you do those things, you participate in the destruction of the cosmos. How are we doing? So the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3 till Revelation 22, is the story of God getting rid of sin and the story of God working to redeem what was lost in the garden. And what was lost in the garden, one of the things was perfect loving relationship with humanity and each other and ourselves, but it was the partnership of humanity with the rest of creation to be stewarded the way God intended it to be. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, the way God intended life to be in the first place is here and available through the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe had significant implications when those two words were put together in the first century. And we've taken them apart and defined them outside of its context. But in context, repent and believe was a phrase that was used before the time of Jesus and after the time of Jesus. And it did not mean to have a religious conversion or to stop sinning. It meant something far more significant than that. And it has to do with what God intended us to be in the first place. In the first century, when you would put repent with belief, it had significant contextual implications. And one that we can kind of draw from is from the famous uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus who wrote in 66 AD an autobiography about when he was working on behalf of the Roman Empire as a Jewish aristocrat trying to convert 
Jewish people to align their agendas to the Roman Empire and join him in partnership with the Roman Empire. And N.T. Wright writes this. His task, this is Josephus, 66 AD, 30 years after Jesus was killed. His task, as he describes it in his autobiography, was to persuade the hot-headed Galileans to stop their mad rush into revolt against Rome and to trust him and the other Jerusalem aristocrats to work out a better way of life, modus vivendi. So when he confronted the rebel leader, he says that he told him to give up his own agenda and to trust him, Josephus, instead. And the word he uses are remarkably familiar to readers of the gospel. He told the leader to repent and believe in him. It's the same phrase. Josephus was not telling the rebel to give up sinning and have a religious conversion. Josephus was telling this radical rebel to give up his nationalistic view of war and realign his life into a new way of alignment around this kingdom agenda that he had with the Roman Empire. In the first century, to repent and believe didn't just mean stop sinning quit, and have an intellectual belief about God. It had something to do with realigning your agenda, your thoughts, your, your, uh, your, your, your way of life around a movement and become a participant. In other words, Jesus was telling his hearers to give up their agendas and trust his way of bringing the kingdom of God, to give up their way of life and trust his way of life and join the revolution. To repent and believe was a call to revolution. It was an invitation to partner with God in this new way of life. God gave us the task to work in relationship with him to extend the culture of the Garden of Eden on earth for the rest of the planet. Jesus comes onto the scene and empowers through partnership with his Holy Spirit. Humans, once again, to partner with God in stewarding the kingdom culture on earth as it is in heaven. Repent and believe is about becoming a partner with God and extending his way of life everywhere you go. It's a little different than just stop sinning and believe the right things. When put into context, it's a call to action from inaction. It's an invitation to partnership. It's an invitation to see all that you have in your life being reoriented around this message of Jesus, which is good news which has less to do about then and there and more to do about here and now than you could ever imagine. And if you allow that message to permeate your entire thought process, you will repent at the dinner table because you're raising up giant killers. You're raising up kingdom partners that need to know how to talk to women, that need to know how to apologize and ask God for forgiveness, that need to know right now how to pray for healing because that's what this is about. It's not about one, getting it right on Sundays. It's about getting it right every moment and when you get it wrong, correcting it. Because I'm going to blow it this afternoon if I know my track record. I'm hungry and I'm tired and I'm not eating good food. And I can't check out on Netflix. So what am I supposed to do? Until the Lord, through the power of his Holy Spirit, transforms those things, which I want to naturally do what Jesus would do and say what he would say without having to think about it. I'm 34 and that I'm so far away. So maybe in 2 million years, that will become the reality and maybe he's laughing going more like 20 million. But the point is, I'll put my faith in that. I will put my life in that. But more importantly than that, I will recognize that the devil is winning when he's convinced us it's the lowest common denominator. 
Because what that does is it keeps you introspective and more focused on making sure you're managing the stuff that's going wrong rather than recognizing it's been dealt with on the cross. Now walk in partnership with God as you go to your nine to five, as you walk into the coffee shop, as you live your life with your family and bring his way of life the way it was intended to be in the first place on earth as it is in heaven. Can I get an amen? Amen. So what do we do? Well, first is we gotta believe. At some point, you have to get to the, come to the, the conclusion that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. And you have to step in that reality. You have to sit in that reality. You have to actively move forward. You're not going to have every answer to every question. In fact, if you read the Gospels and you can do a count, you should ask, how many questions does Jesus answer? Do you know how many? Three. Guess how many questions he's asked? About 187 questions. He answers three. Guess how many questions Jesus asks? Over 300. So you're like, oh, I'm looking for an answer. Well, Jesus probably has a question for your answer. (laughs) So you got to believe. And we're talking about the literal, physical, resurrected Jesus Christ. We're not talking about some spiritual idea. We're not talking about the resurrection being this transcendental mindset, this enlightened philosophical view. We're talking about body dead on a cross, buried, body physically raised from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth lived in human history, died on a cross in human history, raised from the dead in human history. That's what we set ourselves to believe in. That's what we have been persuaded, won over by that confession of faith, that Jesus. It's not your yoga practice that will save you. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not some keto diet that's going to save you or some self-help guru. Guru, It's Jesus Christ and faith in him that will cause you to live Hold on, live the way you were intended to live here and now. It's not just about then and there, right now. Believe in Jesus. Second is repent. Church, this is Lent. Lent is the season where we confess, where we create space. We get rid of complacency to prepare for the resurrection. We know we're going to the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. He will call his disciples. If you do not pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being my disciple. We have to recognize in our life there are areas we need to let go of. We need to change directions. We need to change our mind about what we have allowed into our lives. Sexual impurity, greed, pride, Envy, jealousy, sloth, laziness, gluttony. I'm just talking about my life. I don't know about yours. But no, all jokes aside, this is what he's calling us to. And right now, as I speak, I know 100% so many of you are being convicted. That's the Holy Spirit. And what we've allowed to do is the enemy to bring shame with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Spirit brings guilt. I've done something wrong. Shame is not of Jesus. It's from the enemy. Shame is I am wrong. I'm bad. I've done something bad, conviction and guilt. Shame is I am bad. Shame, fear, sin and its power has been done with on the cross. We live as sons and daughters. We live as co-heirs with Christ. That's where we stand. That's where we put our faith. So if you're here and you're convicted, good. Say to Jesus, I'm sorry. Help me. Invite your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, empower me and keep going down the road and keep on repenting as it keeps manifesting. Right? How are we doing? Third thing, join the revolution. 
We're part of the movement. We're part of the greatest movement that's ever existed. It will cost you everything. Your job is on the table for following Jesus. Your family is on the table. Your dreams are on the table. Your home, your white picket fence, your boat, or your desire for any of those things. All of that is on the table. Reconstruct your life around the belief and repentance that Jesus is leading us on this great revolution and movement. So I don't know what it means for you, but I feel like God is waking up our church right now. Because something is in the water. Something is stirring. There's more power, excitement. Like, there's so many visions. I'm getting, people are dreaming. People are, are writing stuff. People are showing up that, that haven't been showing up. God's bringing about something. So jump in. Whatever that means. Just do it. You guys good? Yes. Believe, repent, join the revolution. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.